0: Incredible body of Christ, Good Friday Message 2020. At one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. For all his people, he drank it all, endured it all, suffered it all, so that now forever there is no flames in hell for them, no racks of torment. They have no eternal woes. Christ has suffered all that they ought to have suffered, and they must they shall go free." End of quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We must not rush into the world's standard of evaluation for the Lord Jesus Christ. His birth was not a scandal. His baptism was for no repentance of sin. His eating with sinners was no compromise. His power to do miracles wasn't from Satan. His meekness wasn't weakness. His growing popularity wasn't what motivated him. His crucifixion was not an epic fail. His death wasn't his end. His resurrection wasn't a hoax. This Good Friday let us together resist any temptation to judge the Lord Jesus Christ by any worldly measurements, because he was so much more, and he, of course, still is so much more. Instead, we will invite in these moments heaven To point out the beauties of the brutal cross. The beauties of the brutal cross. To do this, we'll look together at Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 38. I'll pause to make some observations along the way. Mark 15, 33 to 38, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour was 12 noon, and so any night darkness then was stunning. It was arresting. It was probably terrifying. No one would have been too busy to notice this. No one would have taken their lunch that day without asking, what is going on? The one who created the sun in the sky was recognized by the sun in the sky that his agonizing time of being temporarily estranged from his heavenly father was taking place. For the very first time ever, there was an interrupted relationship within the Trinity. The poison of sin, of all sin of all time, will do that because God hates sin and he must judge it. The excruciating pain for God the Father that day and for God the Son was that the innocent Son of God had all of the sins of all of the persons of all time heaped upon him. And for the hours that that sin was Jesus Christ's soiled garment, for those particular dark hours, figuratively speaking, God the Father turned his back on God the Son. No wonder the sun in the sky was shocked. Before we move away from verse 33, I point out that according to verse 25, our Lord was nailed to the cruel cross at 9 a.m. And according to verse 33, it was three hours later at high noon when the sky went jet black. Then according to verse 33, our Lord died at 3 p.m. 9 a.m. till noon, he was in the bright and hot sun. Agony, dehydration, labored breathing, shame. Noon to 3 p.m., in night-like darkness, there was intensifying agony. Painful exhaustion, extremely labored breathing, coming to the very edge of suffocation time and time again. And then when the clocks struck 3 p.m., there was the dismissal of his own spirit and death. He had a ruptured heart. He physically died. And that physical death, of course, was for you, you, And that physical death, of course, was for me. In six hours, six hours never to be improved upon, six hours never to need be repeated. In six hours, the payment for the world's sins was completed, paid in full. The debt was entirely retired. But if a person rejects Christ and rejects Christ's cross, then the payment required for their sins takes no less than forever and ever in hell to retire the debt. It's six hours by someone else. It's eternity and forever, forever when one does it oneself. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which translated is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first reported words spoken were in the language of Aramaic. Our Lord and Savior spoke Aramaic when he was on earth in his ministry and life. Let's think about forsaken. He asked the Father, Why? had the Father forsaken him. I'll tell you what forsaken was not. Forsaken was not forgotten, and forsaken was not hated, and forsaken was not permanently cut off. Instead, forsaken was unhelped, distanced from, for those six hours at least, judged. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, He, that is God the Father, made him that is the lord jesus christ who knew no sin to be sin that is may interject not to sin but to be sin to be the sin substitute to be like the old testament scapegoat who carried away the sins of the israeli nation from the camp once a year he god the father made him the lord jesus christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that is for our eternal benefit, that we might become, that is share in, have imputed to our accounts, be justified by the righteousness of God in Him, Christ. Verses 35 and 36. And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Mm -hmm. You know, back then as even today, there were persons all around and they were like gawkers who loved to watch the aftermath of a gruesome car accident the Lord Jesus' cross, there were those there who were persons which, with way too much time on their hands, persons with too much interest in execution and torture and pain and blood and death, persons who craved something to gossip about later when the crosses were emptied of their victims. Oh yes, at Jesus' cross, there were nosy people, calloused bystanders who Entertained themselves with other person's torture and, and even death. You know, if they had been on those crosses, they wouldn't have appreciated what they themselves were doing. But they did it anyway. Curiosity overruled decency. And these bystanders either misheard or misinterpreted the Lord's verbal and audible cry to his father. The Lord actually cried out Eloi, but they thought he called out Elijah. The twisted sideshow took a turn for even worse. When they got up as it were on their tiptoes to see if their long dead prophet Elijah would take a curtain call, would do an encore, would make a spectacular appearance by returning from the dead. (laughs) That sure would have given them a bombshell to share with other people over coffee. Sometimes they might contend that if you're in the right place at the right time, you can become a big shot and overnight. Verse 37. And Jesus uttered a cry and breathed his last. Matthew 27 verse 50 reports that the Lord at this point on the cross yielded up his spirit That is, he released it, he sent it on its way. He gave it up. Matthew 27, 50 makes it clear that no one took the Lord Jesus' life from him. He volunteered it. He yielded. He was not forced. And no one, no one, decided when he would die. He determined that. He yielded up his spirit in death. And so, in death as in life, Jesus was in full control. He was not a victim. He was a volunteer. He could have called 10,000 angels, but instead he called upon divine power to endure and to obey to the end. Really, he is the Lord of life. And that lordship over life included over his own life. Next, I want to consider with you what scripture calls a loud cry. We know from Luke 22, verse 46, that this loud cry involved the saying from Jesus, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And we know from John 19, verse 30, that this same loud cry also included, It is finished. It is finished. It is finished, as you may know, was a commercial term, a business term, something that a merchant would scrawl on a bill which had been paid in full by a creditor. It was a loud cry, but not of pain, but victory. It was a loud cry, not of despair, but of a very tough job done. It was a loud cry, not of random injustice, but of prophesied forgiveness. It was a loud cry, not of anger, but of prayer. It was a loud cry not, Father you owe me, but rather they no longer owe you, Father. It was a loud cry which has called ever since sinners to accept the love and the grace of the full payment for sin that the one who made the loud cry had accomplished. And so I ask you, what have you done with the loud cry? Have you dropped everything to answer it? Or have you deferred it, delayed it, depreciated it? What have you done with the loud cry? Second question, have you told anyone else about the loud cry? When was the last time you told someone else about the loud cry from the cross? Shared your faith, evangelized the lost. When was the last time? Some people in the sound of my voice have never done it. Not once have told anyone else about the loud cry of Christ from the cross, it is finished. Oh, don't stay in that category, believer. Tell others about the loud cry. Trust God for help to do it. Third question, will you ready yourself to tell as many persons as possible about the loud cry? I have some practical ways you could do so, to ready yourself. First of all, it takes being dependent on God. Pray. Talk to God about persons before you talk to persons about God. Second, it takes excitement. When I got engaged to Beth, you couldn't stop me from telling everybody I met. I thought it would take a couple seconds with me that I was engaged and this is her name and this is her picture in my wallet. I was excited. We need to get excited about the Lord Jesus Christ if we're going to tell others about his cry to them from the cross. It also takes commitment. It takes goal setting. What if you prayerfully set a goal to tell someone else about the loud cry of Jesus from the cross, one person per week, at least? And to make that a matter of prayer, and to go through your days looking for who that one person is, you may find in the course of the week that God will lead you to more than one person he wants you to share the good news with. It also takes being urgent, being urgent. This COVID-19 crisis has maybe made all of us more urgent about a lot of things, washing our hands, for instance. But we ought to be a whole lot more urgent about the souls of others. Even in our own commonwealth, as now five souls have slipped into eternity. Please help the families, Lord. It's an urgent hour. The time could be short for any of us. We need to tell others the way of salvation. We need to get urgent. On the Titanic, John Harper was an evangelist going from Europe over to Chicago to preach evangelistic meetings at Moody Church in Chicago. And as he was perishing on board the Titanic, witnesses said that he, in the water, not in a lifeboat, he was yelling to anyone who could hear him, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? Trust him and be saved gave his life jacket to a woman who had no life jacket. And shortly after he did so, he slipped into the dark, icy waters for heaven. He was urgent. We must be urgent. And then, our last verse in the passage today is verse 38. Verse 38, which says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top, to bottom. What a observation and, and uh, miracle that was. Let me tell you why. Jewish historian Josephus, who did not come to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he wrote the Jewish history around the time of Christ's time on earth. The Most respected and uh, detailed Jewish historian of them all, Josephus, he said and made a note that when the Jews were erecting their temple and looking for a curtain, They hitched two horses up to the opposite hems of the curtain and had the horses pull against each other as fast as hard as they could to prove, hopefully, that the curtain could not rip. The horses could not rip that curtain in part, so the Jews hung that curtain in their temple as a barrier between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. Uh, Certainly, no priest could go into the Holy of Holies. That curtain prevented it, and certainly no ordinary Jew could go into the Holy of Holies. That curtain prevented it, but when the Lord Jesus Christ died, when he gave up his spirit in death, when the sacrifice for sin was made, it is finished, that curtain, the unrippable curtain, was ripped from top to bottom. Nobody was standing on the ground, no horses standing on the ground, no strong men standing on the ground could rip that curtain, but God Almighty, in the heavens above, ripped the curtain in two, from top to bottom, why? Why would God do the miracle of ripping the temple's curtain in two from top to bottom? Oh, simple. To make visual and to make practical and to make wonderful the new access that was there for any believer in Jesus to have access to holy God, that the holy of holies wouldn't be in a Jewish temple anymore, but the holy of holies would be in the hearts of born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of his access, one, we could have immediate access to the holy of holies, God the Father in heaven, God the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That's why God ripped the temple's curtain in two from top to bottom. There's a wonderful, postscript on this. In Acts, the book of Acts, the record of the baby church expanding and growing. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it's recorded, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Now watch. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You want to know it when the curtain ripped the two from top to bottom, that it was was the buzz around the religious community in Jerusalem and beyond. And many priests came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when that miracle took place. Many priests came to the Lord. May 100% of us believers become messengers of the beauties of the brutal cross.